Hermione Granger and the Silent Country. From There Is Nothing to Fear by Santissi Day. Read by Sam Gabriel. Based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Chapter 17 So Absolutely Free. Jenny had mentioned that at Hogwarts, Christmas morning was a sort of housewide affair, with presents opened in dorms or even in the common room, where most everyone would end up before they went to breakfast. Something similar happened at Beaubaton, though as the older students were set apart according to their specialty of interest, their Christmas congregations were organized likewise. There were only a few members of the Beaubaton delegation who shared an SI, and everyone had separate rooms, so the unwrapping of Christmas presents that morning was mostly an individual activity, but Hermione hardly cared. She had never been close to anyone her age at Beaubaton, though before she went home for Christmas she would always open a few presents with Fleur and Sabrina until Fleur's mentor graduated. She did pass by a couple of people in the carriage halls on their way to Fleur, however, and Vicente, bless him, noticed she was hung over and recommended a dose of Gérie de Bois, which worked like a charm. To be fair, that was true of most potions. There was a card from her parents and sister, who hoped she was enjoying herself, and from her grandparents, who had enclosed eighty-five pounds in four kinds of bill, five pounds, ten pounds, twenty pounds, and fifty pounds, and an exhortation to use the money well and treat herself to something nice. It was, Hermione suspected, a roundabout way of suggesting that she visit England one of these days, since Hermione was rather sure that there was nowhere she could spend this money in France except maybe for a couple of tourist traps, but she might be able to put the money to good use anyway. The artistry of the pound notes was not as beautiful as that of the francs and kroner she'd sold to Draco, but what she'd read of Britain's law suggested that schoolchildren, at least, were unlikely to have access to muggle currency, or many other muggle goods for that matter, and might still regard them as exotic. The rest of Hermione's presents were books, of course, every last one. From Fleur she received a copy of Commonly Forgotten Principles of Ingredient Substitutions, which Hermione hoped would never be as useful in the future as it would have been during the first task. In exchange, Hermione had gotten Fleur a postlude to arithmancy, which might have been a little beyond Fleur's level. It was beyond Hermione's for sure, and no wonder when it was intended for fully graduated students. But Fleur was a year and a half from graduating, and anyway, she was brilliant. Victor had given her a Norwegian primer and a book which was titled, as far as she could puzzle out from the primer, A Possible History of Durmstrang. In his note, Victor apologized for being unable to find a copy of the book in either English or French, but expected that Hermione would enjoy the challenge of translating it as much as the actual process of reading it. After opening their presents, Hermione and Fleur spent most of the day sitting beside an enchanted fire in the carriage, reading the books they had received that morning. Due to the feast which they were to have at the Yule Ball, there was no dinner scheduled, and she had already purchased some takeaway the day before so that she wouldn't have to go down to Hogsmeade today, so Hermione was expecting to spend the rest of the day until the Yule Ball, just like that. But from her lunchtime soup, Hermione had to fish out a square of folded-up parchment, another summons from Riddle, and that soured her on both eating and reading. Perhaps because Adalia noticed something else was on her mind, and perhaps because it had been the plan all along, Adalia dragged her out for a snowy duel soon after. Worse, Fleur assisted in the abduction. The hours passed like minutes, and though Hermione ended up weary, a bit bruised, and chilled to the bone, it was nothing that a hot shower and a potion couldn't fix. She had to change to a new outfit anyway. Hermione wasn't exactly one for dress robes, but the Yule Ball was a ball, and a certain mode of attire was expected. 
with some advice from Samara and Dedalia, the latter of whom had some unexpectedly good suggestions. Hermione had ordered a set of lavender-blue dress robes, then gotten fitted at Gladrags down in Hogsmeade. The hem floated just a little, staying away from her feet and never quite making contact with the floor so that she wouldn't trip. It was good enough, presentable even, though she felt vaguely dissatisfied with that evaluation and for no reason that she could put her finger on. This had nothing to do with her academic performance, and if she was harboring some kind of subconscious suspicion that the Yule Ball had been set up by Riddle in order to, well, that was the problem, wasn't it, with that idea? Whatever he had in mind, her insufficiently elaborate dress robes probably weren't going to play into his master plan. Whatever he had in mind, her insufficiently elaborate dress robes probably weren't going to play into his master plan. Her dissatisfaction remained, nevertheless, and when Fleur entered the library where Hermione was sitting beside Samara, she felt positively shabby. Fleur's dress robes were understated, really, just silver-gray satin, but she still looked like moonlight-given flesh, and Hermione was grateful that Fleur spoke first to Samara, because Hermione needed a moment to collect herself and become coherent. "'You, uh, Fleur, you—' Hermione stopped, and attempted to summon a bit of her occlumency lessons, thinking through a few paragraphs of a comprehensive history before she tried again. "'We should go.' Fleur smiled faintly for a moment, and then her face became inexpressive, and she nodded. They walked to the shore of the Black Lake, where Victor was waiting for them, dressed in red dress robes and an enormous fur-lined cape. Hermione would have thought it was a little ostentatious, but he was able to pull it off with a dignified grace. With little in the way of greetings, and certainly not without asking for permission, Samara stepped into the dinghy that sat beside Victor, and after she waved goodbye to Fleur and Hermione, it rowed away to the larger boat that the Durmstrangers slept on. Victor gave no indication whether Samara had prearranged this with him, or he was just very good at rolling with unexpected events. Together they walked up to the castle, partly to get ahead of the rush, but also so that they could rehearse their dancing one final time. "'I got a present for you, Victor, but I don't know when it's going to arrive,' Hermione said as they walked. "'Apparently it's getting stuck in customs because of this interdict business that the British Wizengamot is still trying to figure out. Draco says that it should be finished any week now, but we'll see.' She sighed. Draco had been hoping for a resolution in the Wizengamot any week now for the past few months— "'It should be useful, even if you have to wait to get it until you leave Britain, I hope.' Victor nodded. "'If you selected it, then I am sure it would be of excellent quality.' "'It's a book,' Hermione added. Victor smiled broadly. "'I would not expect anything less.' "'Walk more quickly,' Fleur interrupted. "'There are people already gathering at the castle, and I do not want to wait too long to find an empty room.' Fleur had insisted that they gather an hour or so before the Yule Ball so that they could practice one last time. She wanted to make sure that she had the Troika down, and was less than totally impressed with Dimitri and even Hermione's performance of the Russian waltz. When it came time for them to leave for the Great Hall, Fleur took Hermione's hand in hers, Hermione's heart gave a funny flip, and extended her other hands to Victor, who looked quizzically at her. "'Fleur, are you meaning to be in the middle?' he asked. "'I suppose I am. "'I am only saying it may look, "'given how we have practiced the Troika "'and how we will be positioned with respect to each other at that time,' Victor said. "'It seems most natural that I be in the middle "'when we make our entrance to the Great Hall.' "'Does it? "'What reason would there be to arrange ourselves in any other way?' "'Fleur, Victor, really?' 
Hermione resisted the urge to roll her eyes. "'I never expected either of you to care who has the central position. We're only going to be walking into a room, after all.' She tapped her wand twice against the table, then picked up the pieces of straw she had made, one short and two longer. "'Listen, just pick a straw and be done with it.' "'It's a little counter-traditional, but let whoever draws the short straw be the winner,' she said, and she clenched a fist around the straws. Fleur and Victor exchanged a look. First to move was Fleur, who then watched with narrowed eyes as Victor considered which straw to draw. Finally he pulled on one, and Fleur immediately measured hers against Victor's. They were the same length. "'Oh,' Hermione said, and she measured the remaining straw against Fleur and Victor's straws. "'It looks like I'm in the middle,' Victor chuckled. "'It appears that you are.' Briefly, Fleur looked ready to jinx Victor, but the moment passed so quickly that Hermione, had she known Fleur less well, might have thought she had imagined it. "'Fleur, he lost. You can't possibly still—' Hermione trailed off as another part of her brain kicked in and reminded her of Fleur's opposition to the trio when Victor originally proposed it a few weeks ago. Fleur frowned. "'As I said, it is, honestly, Fleur.' He's hardly going to kidnap me and disapparate off into the woods. He isn't some sort of barbarian. No, of course not. I am a Quidditch player. Naturally, I would fly off with you on a broomstick, Victor said, smiling. But of course, only with your permission. Fleur looked ready to respond when Hermione took her hand again, and then Fleur apparently decided to concede the argument. It was a good thing, too, because Hermione suddenly couldn't think of anything to say. The Yule Ball awaits. Victor said, and Hermione nodded. Fleur, though unhappy, didn't press the matter further, and they walked down to the great hall without incident. As they entered, it seemed to Hermione that there were a few stares and maybe some murmurs, but it could just as easily have been in her head. Besides, Fleur was standing there beside her, and Victor, well, Hermione tried not to stare, but he cut a fine figure, so it would be little wonder if others were gawking a little at her companions. And anyway, what did it matter? Hermione wasn't here for any of them, not any more than she was here for Riddle. She was here for herself, and dancing may not have been Hermione's forte, but she was with friends, and she was going to have a good time if it killed her. Well, maybe not that far, considering some of the company tonight. Haywood was in attendance, and with Peregrine Derrick, of all people, who looked no worse for having been set on fire a few months ago. Riddle was present, of course, along with three other Death Eaters— it was difficult even to distinguish the folds of their black robes, let alone tell one of them from the others. It wasn't all bad, though. Fleur and Victor were on either side of her, and Hermione had no shortage of other friends present. Samara had arrived with Dimitri, Draco, and Neville with a couple of girls she didn't recognize, and Ginny with the older crab-catch boy, Clark, or Cole, or something like that. In place of the five rectangular tables which usually sat in the great hall, there were a number of round oaken tables, lit variously by candles or lanterns, and each large enough for just a few people, except for the table at the center, which could easily seat a dozen or more. Riddle, Madame Maxime, and Karkaroff were already present, positioned equidistant from each other around the table, and to their left were the judges each had invited. Bagman to Riddle's left, Mertvago and Blogana to Karkaroff's, and so forth. Little place cards to their right stated where Hermione, Fleur, and Victor were to sit, and Hermione, seeing where her name had been set, steeled herself and took her seat, Riddle on her left, October on her right, and Madame Maxime and Fleur beyond him. Sitting in front of Hermione was a golden plate, with an impressive array of silver cutlery and a menu written in ornate calligraphy. 
At the top of the menu were instructions on its use, speak the name of a dish, along with any modifications that were desired, and it would appear on the table. It was unlike other meals at Hogwarts or even Bobaton, where dishes appeared on one's plate but without any room for requests, but the system was straightforward enough. After looking over her options for a few minutes, Hermione requested a bowl of onion soup prepared with sweet Gruyere cheese and a little white wine, and also asked for a small plate of Poundany Chushki, fried peppers stuffed with eggs, and sharp, salty feta cheese. Briefly, she considered getting some white wine to drink, but the morning's hangover still loomed heavy in her thoughts, so she asked for cinnamon water instead. All of it appeared before she could set the menu down. Riddle spoke, without so much as tilting his head in the direction of the menu. His plate was promptly covered with brisket and mashed potatoes, and a bowl of grapes, glass of wine, and a miniature gravy boat appeared beside the plate. He immediately handed a grape to Padfoot, who sat between him and Hermione. Briefly, she was tempted to pet him, but she squashed it with a reminder to herself that he was first and foremost the headmaster's dog, and probably shouldn't be encouraged to hang around her more than he already did. Karkaroff and Blogana made conversation with each other, talking past the Russian who sat between them eating her salted herring and pickled tomatoes without speaking to anyone. Hermione discussed her studies with Madame Maxime, who wanted some assurances that she was not burying herself in schoolwork and extracurriculars. It would have been pleasant if not for the way that October kept interjecting small, apparently innocuous remarks, like, "'Alchemy? I studied that in youth as well. A surprisingly useful subject.' Or, "'Just be sure not to neglect your body while you feed your mind.' Hermione couldn't help but suspect he might be trying to convey some cryptic double meaning, or perhaps that was paranoia, and he was just trying to contribute to the conversation. To her left, Riddle poured a little gravy on his mashed potatoes, then wandlessly levitated the plate to the floor, where Padfoot began to eat. "'Santa Blogana, it was so nice of you to visit us again so soon,' he said. "'I know that your position must keep you incredibly occupied.' Blogana smiled. "'How could I resist the opportunity to return to Britain and all that you have accomplished here?' "'You are welcome to take it with you,' Riddle said, carefully cutting his brisket into small pieces. "'Imitation is a theft which never diminishes the original.' "'I, yes,' Blogana cast her eyes about, as if searching the Great Hall for something. "'I must confess my surprise that the ball has proceeded so smoothly.' I was told that Hogwarts had the most vicious, disgusting ghosts. Now the ghosts are quite well-mannered, Riddle fed another grape to Padfoot. But we did have some trouble with a poltergeist, as it happens. It's rather unclear when Peeves first became a problem. Some say that he came at the building, as it were. Though most agree that the castle was built, not renovated, by the founders. Others say that he was a byproduct of packing so many children into one place. "'Though Bobertal has a larger student population than we do, "'and I don't think that you are afflicted with any poltergeists, "'are you, Madame Maxime?' "'We are not,' Maxime answered with no small amount of pride. "'We expel such things at their earliest rumblings.' "'Unfortunately, some of my predecessors were more negligent than yours have been,' Riddle said. "'Soon after I became the headmaster at Hogwarts, Peeves became something of an issue. "'I did make every attempt to parley with him.' But that sort of creature is usually unable to change its nature. They're almost more like a complex spell effect than persons. Anyway, I resolved to do something about him. As Riddle spoke, he handed a third grape to Padfoot. The spirit division of the Ministry offered to handle the job, 
but I didn't want to trouble them, and anyway, they were unnecessary. Poltergeists can be difficult to extricate, especially after they have been left to seed for a long time. But it is not impossible. They are only semi-incorporeal, which means that the usual exorcisms will be ineffective, but also that they are susceptible to other methods that are closed against ghosts. I was able to take care of matters quite satisfactorily on my own, with little assistance from Mr. Atrament, who was our discipline master at that time. I did not think it was possible to convince a poltergeist to leave, but then exorcists do not employ your unique personnel, said Karkaroff, who sounded impressed, disturbed, and perhaps frustrated that he felt either. But I suppose that even a poltergeist would flee his residence rather than face a Dementor. Where did you remove him to? A Muggle Manor, perhaps? We didn't displace him at all. There wasn't anything to displace when we were through, as it turned out, Riddle said. Karkaroff's face fell. He turned away and lifted a spoon of his reindeer stew, but only looked at it for a few seconds and then set it back in the bowl and took a drink of his aquavit instead. Others shifted uneasily in their seats, and Matvago's eye of providence flickered awake for a brief moment. "'You killed him,' Hermione said. "'Now, now, Miss Granger, let us be precise in our terms,' Riddle said, wagging a finger. "'Poltergeists are amortal beings. They cannot die, because they were never born.' I did not kill him. I annihilated him. If Riddle intended to intimidate her, then he had succeeded, but Hermione would be damned if she let him see it. Karkaroff, on the other hand, blanched straight away, and Blogana looked little better. Very efficient, October said coolly. As if he had said nothing of any concern, Riddle lowered his wine glass to waste level. Hermione watched Patfoot as he happily lapped up wine, then looked back at Riddle. The incongruity of his generosity to the dog and his viciousness in so many other respects was bothersome, and Hermione was disturbed by the way that he could so easily move from one to the other and back again. "'Do you ever eat, sir?' she snapped, her voice harsher than she intended. "'I eat the hearts of those who offer themselves to me,' Riddle explained. "'The first heart I ate belonged to a young man named Tom Riddle,' You may have heard of him, but I have eaten many others over the years. I require no other sustenance. The dinner conversation did not recover, and more than a couple of people seemed to eat less enthusiastically. When Hermione looked at Fleur and Victor, they seemed kilometers away, despite that they sat only across the table. For dessert, Hermione was given a chocolate mousse that reminded her of the chocolate she'd had on Halloween, darker than black, smoke and savory with a bottomless bitterness that lingered like a hole in her stomach. She would have liked it if not for the company she had to bear, and she stood to leave before the moose was half finished. The music began slowly, with a solo flute and then a theme by violin, which was, Hermione thought, surprisingly haunting for something being played on Christmas. But it soon became more energetic, and then it was time to take Victor's hand. Their troika probably wasn't much to look at, to a certain extent, it didn't thrill Hermione much to perform it either, and made her feel a little silly as well. But perhaps that's how everyone felt when they danced the Troika. Victor said that it was a lot like pulling a sledge, albeit one that was invisible, and the dancers were supposed to stand in for horses, though Hermione didn't think they were doing anything particularly horse-like. 
They moved forward a little bit, trotting, if Hermione were to be very loose in her comparison to horses, not so much stepping as jumping from one foot to the other and back again, and then Victor and Fleur raised their hands, intertwined, and Hermione passed beneath their arms. Victor followed after her, his other hand twisting in Fleur's grip, and then they proceeded forward by a few steps before they repeated the process. This time Hermione and Victor raised their hands, and Fleur, who was taller than her by a good measure, had more trouble than Hermione when passing through. Briefly, they joined hands, all three of them, in a circle. They spun, they stamped their feet, and they broke away again to repeat the cycle. They sped up, they slowed down. It was not quite in time with the music. The band had planned for a waltz, and seemed uninterested in changing that plan. But it hardly mattered in the face of everything else. There was a part where they would have given Victor away to another trio and gotten somebody else in return, but no one else was on the floor with them, so they had to improvise. It was an awkward, ridiculous dance, and Hermione felt awkward and ridiculous doing it here in front of everyone, but then she looked up at her dance partners. Fleur, radiant as always, looked like she was practically floating through the steps. Victor looked like he was concentrating very hard, and Hermione thought that maybe he cared a great deal about doing it correctly, but then he glanced up and met her gaze, and his eyes were dark and warm with good humor. Hermione smiled back, and Fleur's shining eyes crinkled with amusement. This silly dance, this flaunting of social norms like a private joke, closing ranks with each other against, against Riddle, but against everybody, against the tournament even whose long-dead architects had intended to pit her against Victor, against Fleur. And after a little while, Hermione was able to forget that anyone else was even there. After they broke apart, Dimitri was the first and worst to congratulate them. "'It was nice to see you as—how you say—a threesome,' he said. And Hermione choked on air. "'No, that is not how you say it,' she replied." hoping to God and any saint who might be listening that Fleur and Victor wouldn't understand the depth of his mistake. The tables were set away, and the great hall was quickly filled with dancing couples, some of whom took to it with more flair than others. While Hermione, Fleur, and Victor looked at each other for a moment, the plan had always been for the three of them to break off, and over the course of the next few songs, waltz as three sets of couples, but they hadn't decided on the order in which that was going to happen. Finally, Victor took a step forward, and Fleur took his hand. "'Victor, we dance now,' she declared, and he was taken away. Hermione observed from the sidelines while she walked around and considered, was tempted by, but ultimately did not take any of the refreshments that were on offer. Raspberry jelly and ice cream, little bits of pineapple and cheese on a stick, and other such things. Victor and Fleur were clearly arguing about something, herself possibly, but it was a quiet argument, and Hermione doubted she could have overheard it even had the Great Hall not been filled with music and other people's conversations. Elsewhere she saw Dahlia and Lino waltzing together and Draco with Ginny, while beyond them a pair of Death Eaters clasped forearms and briefly pressed their foreheads together, in a gesture which Hermione had seen once before and now in this setting struck her as oddly intimate. "'All three of them dancing together?' she overheard as she passed by a few older Hogwarts students. One of them shrugged, Rack Harrow, she was pretty sure, the vampire from Madame Pomfrey's medical magic class. "'Inter-school solidarity, maybe,' he said without interest. When Fleur and Victor were finished, they both headed to Hermione, but Dimitri and Samara nearly waltzed into Fleur, obstructing her way for a few moments. That was enough time for Victor to make it to Hermione and extend his hands to her. To be honest, Victor wasn't a terribly good dancer.' 
Oh, he learned well enough, and paid excellent attention to Fleur's lessons on the Russian waltz, but the greater part of his coordination and nimbleness existed only on a broom. That was fine, though. Hermione didn't consider herself to be fantastic either, not like Fleur, so if they were going to dance awfully, it was nice to do it together. As soon as Hermione and Victor had finished, Fleur, who had been hanging around on the sidelines this whole time, quickly brought her back to the dance floor. Fleur was a much more elegant dancer than Victor, but was able to accommodate Hermione's lack of talent. Hermione worried she might be dragged along helplessly in Fleur's tide, but instead it seemed almost as though Hermione were floating through the steps. The only odd part was that, from time to time, Fleur would distance herself from Hermione, then slowly bring Hermione closer over the course of a half-dozen steps or a couple of turns. Hermione wasn't sure what to make of it. Was this part of the dance? Probably not, Hermione decided. It wasn't like anything they'd practiced, and nobody else seemed to be doing it that way. Really, Fleur just seemed distracted overall, so much so that she hardly said anything to Hermione after the dance was over. After that, Hermione walked the perimeter of the great hall, paying equal attention to the dancers and the peculiar refreshments. Adalia and Lino, candied almonds and green-veined cheeses, Neville and one of the Durmstrang girls, sugar plums and savory fairy cakes, made with fresh fairies, according to the sign beside them. Eventually, she came across Draco, Ginny, and Dimitri, who were engaged in conversation beside one of the refreshment tables. "'No, Dora's got a little more—well, I could hardly tell you, could I?' Draco said. "'I think you're just trying to cover for her,' Ginny said. Draco shrugged. "'I have a shiny sickle in my pocket that says you're about to lose a hundred points for Hufflepuff,' he said. "'What are you doing?' asked Hermione, as she helped herself to a glass of pomegranate nectar and cinnamon. "'Watching Death Eaters,' Draco said. "'Draco says that this Death Eater isn't his cousin,' Ginny explained. "'I have doubts. They almost dropped their goblet a few minutes ago.' "'Which Death Eater?' "'That one.' Ginny said, and she gestured, but it was too sloppy and too quick for Hermione to figure out which Death Eater she was pointing at. There were three of them in that general direction, all clad in the same attire, cloaks black as night and masks white as ivory. It was very difficult to identify individual details, and where their cloaks extended it seemed as though they were two-dimensional cutouts. Trying to tell them apart from each other, even when she could see them at the same time, seemed like a fool's errand. "'I do not know this cousin, but—' "'I think it is none of them are riddle,' said Dimitri. "'He sounded very confident. "'No, he's definitely here. "'Do you see that one by the punch bowl? "'That's riddle,' Draco said. "'But Dimitri shook his head. "'What do you know about it?' Draco scoffed. "'You just got here.' "'Ginny seemed to have more faith in him, "'or at least in his confidence. "'You're sure about that one not being the headmaster?' "'Ginny asked. "'Dimitri nodded. "'Ginny, you're not about to—' "'Draco said, but Ginny cut him off. "'Even if Dimitri's wrong—' "'There's just a one in four chance that I get it wrong. "'Riddle can't be all of them,' Ginny said, and she went off, "'then soon returned, red-faced and frowning furiously. "'What did I tell you? Riddle,' Draco said, "'practically throwing his arms out. "'Shy!' Ginny snapped. "'Then more softly she said, "'I have a sickle in my room. "'I'll get it to you tonight.' "'You know that the other three aren't Riddle,' Hermione said. "'Why don't you go to them now? "'You could make back all the points you lost and more.' "'I wouldn't risk it,' Draco said. "'Dora told me about these Ravenclaws who tried that in her time, "'and they just lost a lot more points for playing fiddlesticks "'and missing the spirit of the game. "'It's about catching mistakes, you know, not the process of elimination.' "'It's about getting points for Hufflepuff,' Ginny asserted. "'She turns to Dimitri. "'And you! Why did you have to sound so confident about it?' 
Dimitri shrugged, but looked no less discouraged. We cannot always be left all the time. What? Ginny sighed. They're going to roast me over the coals tonight, I'm sure. Tell them that I told you it was my cousin, Draco said. Ginny looked as confused as Hermione felt. What's this now? Ginny asked. I thought that was my cousin and told you as much, Draco said. You just walked over there because I didn't want to call out Dora personally, so it was my fault, not yours. Oh, Ginny said, and she elbowed him gently. What'd you give me that bad advice for, anyway? She said, grinning. I would have thought you could tell your cousin from any old Death Eater. She paused. Fancy another dance? We probably shouldn't, Draco said, sounding distant and looking away from all of them. Hermione followed the line of his gaze across the room to where his father stood, making conversation with Professor Sinistra and occasionally, unsubtly, paying glances at Draco. Professor Malfoy looked not disapproving or angry, as Hermione might have expected from Draco's time, but anxious. "'Right. You know, I think that Luna's calling me,' Ginny said, though by her tone she obviously hadn't heard a thing, and she went off. Draco sighed. "'I should probably go dance with Justin again. Maybe a few more times, at least by the end of the night.' At Hermione's questioning look, he said, "'Justin's a muggle-born,' as if that explained anything, and he departed, leaving only Dimitri behind with Hermione. She looked back at the Death Eater at the punch bowl. Then at another Death Eater, who seemed to be engaged in conversation with Haywood and a few of the other students. I must have gotten them mixed up at some point. I would have sworn that I had dinner with that one, Hermione said, pointing at the second Death Eater. You did, Dimitri said. He looked around the great hall, going from one thing to another, and though he never quite looked at any of the Death Eaters directly, it seems to Hermione as though one or another of them was always close to the object of his attention. Do you mean that whole time... We weren't eating with Riddle at all. Hermione wasn't sure how much she believed that. She had met Riddle up close a few times before, and he seemed no different than he ever was, and Dimitri had just shown how lousy he was at identifying Death Eaters. That is how it appears. I must be going off from the chair, Dimitri said, and he stood. I should like to dance again with someone, but you... I think you should try the fig tarts, perhaps the goulash as well, which is tremendously good here. Dimitri, there's no goulash at the refreshment tables. Then ask for some. There are surely leftovers. I did not eat so much that it will all be gone. Anyway, do not be hasty with departures, yes? Almost as soon as Dimitri had left, Victor arrived. Would you like to dance? he asked. Hermione cocked her head. Didn't we already dance? We did, Victor said, nodding. Would you like to dance again? Hermione looked around. Further down, Lyra was speaking animatedly with the Weasley twins and ladling herself a cup of either pomegranate juice or blood, both of which Hermione had seen on offer tonight. She glanced down at the glass of nectar and cinnamon in her hands. I need to finish this first, Hermione decided. If Victor was impatient, he didn't show it. Flurries, how do you say it? You are very dear to her, Victor said. But, of course, she does not approve the age difference. That is hard for her. She's always been there for me ever since I came to Bobaton, and I know that she's still looking out for me, Hermione replied. That doesn't mean that she's always right, though. It doesn't mean that she's right on this occasion. You're not that much older than me, she said. Victor looked a little confused, just for a moment, then nodded. Anyway, yes, let's have another dance. Hermione decided, and they stepped out onto the dance floor. "'I would like her to ask you on a date,' 
Victor said eventually, between a forward stamp and a clockwise twirl. I, uh, the... Hermione forgot to step, then seemed to have two left feet, but Victor matched her movements, or lack thereof, as they were made, and she hardly stumbled at all. Graceful on the dance floor he might not be, but at least he could avert a fall. Victor said nothing else, but only danced with her as Hermione tried to fit her thoughts together. She did like him. It was hard to do otherwise. Fleur managed to dislike Victor, but she was talented at so many things. It was hardly a surprise that she could accomplish this as well. "'Why?' she finally asked. "'I like you. You are clever, hard-working, brave.' Victor was quiet for a moment, and Hermione gave him the time he needed to think. "'It is also nice that you do not care much about Quidditch. You see me as myself,' Victor sighed. "'Sometimes even Dimitri sees me as great seeker first, I think.' "'Victor, I think—' Hermione looked over his shoulder as they danced. Fleur would be angry, true, but really, Fleur needed to relax about this. Victor had been nothing but kind.' The two of them swooped into a turn, and Hermione met Victor's eyes and smiled. "'I think we should try and date, yes.' After their dance, Hermione wandered over to a refreshment table again, vaguely wishing that she had finished her dinner, or at least that she hadn't needed to eat beside Riddle. Further off, Fleur was dancing with Dimitri. It was clear that Fleur was giving him grief at the same time. Over what? Hermione couldn't begin to guess, now that there were multiple possibilities— but Dimitri looked no worse for whatever tongue-lashing she was putting him through. Hermione laughed softly to herself, took a bite out of a raspberry tart, and nearly choked. It was another of those damnable sheets from Riddle, that goddamn muggle junk mail or terrible party favors. "'Your presence at the pumpkin punch bowl is cordially requested. Please make yourself available at any time, but preferably before the punch bowl is put into storage.' For a minute or so, Hermione weighed her options. She could go on ignoring his summonses, which probably wouldn't result in anything specifically terrible, or she could answer, and maybe have a month or two of free time before she started getting letters again, if the last time was any indication. If she was going to meet with him safely, then she wouldn't get a better opportunity than at the Yule Ball, where both of them were in full view of the entire school, to say nothing of the delegations from Bobaton and Durmstrang and a couple of foreign politicians— Having made up her mind, Hermione stalked over to the punch bowl, where Riddle stood with a crystal goblet full of pumpkin juice. Beside him lay a few untouched trays of fruit tarts and purple-skinned cubes of cheese, and on the other side, a proud Christmas tree bedecked with luminous berries and painted dirigible plums. "'You wanted to see me again,' Hermione said. Riddle turned, and, without the benefit of facial expressions, nevertheless did a suitable job of conveying mock surprise with his shoulders and stance alone. "'Indeed I did. Thank you for coming more quickly this time.' He fell silent for a moment, as if considering his words, and Hermione gave him the time, if only so she wouldn't have to speak with him more than was necessary. "'It has come to my attention that you are distressing the elves.' Hermione looked up at him in surprise. This was what it was all about. I didn't mean to. I only spoke with them once. Yet you continue to take your meals at Hogsmeade. Do you think that they are unaware of this? So you're saying that my decision to eat elsewhere is making them feel bad? Clearly you think that there is something wrong with the food that they prepare, or rather with them. 
as the ones who prepare it. Of course, this distresses them. You think that there is something bad about them. As if she was the villain in this scenario. If they thought anything was wrong, it wasn't Hermione who was responsible, but she didn't think that Riddle was lying about how they perceived the situation, and she did regret that. I'm uncomfortable with the situation, and I don't know what to do with it, Hermione admitted. Because years ago, some elves were killed, let us be precise in our terms and free of euphemism, and others were freed against their will. Hermione nodded. Why didn't you let them... choose? she asked, forcing out the word, forcing herself not to dwell over much on the idea of choosing slavery, not when the alternative in Britain was death. Why do you still not let them choose? If he was going to force the conversation, then fine, she would take advantage of that. Have you ever handled a crap, Miss Granger? Or, Riddle added, with the air of an afterthought, a dog... Some of them tolerate humans, and others seek us out. Craps in particular will usually prefer a wizard over another crap, if they must choose. Reluctantly, Hermione nodded. That was domestication, wasn't it? You understand, intellectually, that house elves have been under our control for thousands of years, and that we have held complete power of life and death over them for all that time. But I do not think that you have internalized the meaning of this. Deference, even reverence, is written into their blood. Subservience is their nature, for longer than the ministry has existed since before the wizen gamut itself was founded, elves who disobeyed have been cold, or forbidden from breeding, just as a crop who bites its handler, no, its owner, will surely die. And now the product of that generational work is free for all to behold. Compare a crop to a wolf, or an elf to a black forest urkling. One can be trusted to mind and protect even the weakest baby, and the other will gladly eat it for supper. But the problem is deeper than this, Riddle said, and he turned into his goblet, as if looking into it, as if it might contain an answer to the deepest mysteries of the universe. The most curious thing about Crumps, he continued, is that they can like a wizard too much. If you have raised that crop by hand, then you can beat it, starve it, abuse it however you like, and it might still love you. They are to their detriment, like humans in that way, but more so if it were possible. The purported courage of fighting crops is founded on a love for their masters, not on brutish tenacity, the better of them at least are inspired by love, which drives us further even when all seems lost, and not by fear, which inevitably fails us when the night is darkest. Elves are beings, though. They can learn to act differently, Hermione objected. Of course they can, Riddle agreed. But I think you will find that, if you set up a class for their instruction on the merits of freedom, your only willing students would be those who already knew them. I'm not saying that slavery is good, but there has to be something else that you could do, some sort of middle ground that you could find. A compromise, Riddle said, and Hermione had hardly begun to nod or form a sentence in her mouth before he continued. You seem to be operating under the misunderstanding, Miss Granger, that you are not witnessing the compromise every day. 
Those elves who cry out for servitude are permitted to serve Hogwarts. Under my eye and against my better judgment, they remain enslaved. I can only take solace in the fact that most are free, and none are born who are then given chains. Someday, finally, I will see this rotten institution pass away. By killing them? It was true that the dead had died years ago, at least according to what Neville had said and what had been written in the books she looked at, but the possibility remained that other elves might die in the future. Riddle didn't seem to have reconsidered what he had done to them. He'd only determined that it was no longer, was not currently necessary. Had it been impossible to rectify this error in any of them, Riddle continued, then I, sorrowfully and with regret, nevertheless would not have stayed my hand from slaughtering the whole race. Slavery is a great evil, and I will not see it perpetuated in Britain. No, you'll just kill everyone who, who too damaged or whatever to be comfortable with freedom. You said that this was done to them, so how is it the elves' fault that some of them can't bear to be free? This has nothing to do with fault or responsibility. It is emancipation, without reservation or excuse. But they want it. They want it badly enough that some of them preferred to die. Doesn't that tell you anything? Let us say that I allowed this point, Riddle replied. Let us say that, beginning tomorrow, the Wizengamot permitted the slavery of elves in Britain to resume. Who shall own them? Whoever the elves choose to own them. Let us say that some of them choose you. Will you become an owner of slaves? Riddle asked, almost growling through the locust cloud of his voice. And Hermione startled. No, of course not. I... But they chose you. Riddle said, tilting the goblet in her direction so far that the pumpkin juice nearly spilled over the rim. Have you not been telling me of the importance of choice? Yes, but, uh, Hermione Albert physically flailed for a moment. I didn't choose that, but about my choice. Very good. We should certainly respect your choice. Have no fear of waking up tomorrow as a slave owner, but in that case, who should wake up as a slave owner? People who choose that, Hermione reluctantly allowed. People who are willing to own slaves. People who, given the opportunity to do otherwise, choose to own a slave. Yes, she said, with a little difficulty. But not you. Yes, that's what I said. Why not? asked Riddle. According to you, it is morally permissible to own a slave. If they want to be owned... But even so, even if they want to be owned by you, you will deny them that, even though you claim that there is nothing immoral about it. Why? I... We have instincts, Miss Granger, and those instincts guide us. You would never look at a piece of old meat left for days to bake and rot in the sun, crawling with worms, and desire to eat it. The sight of it, the putrid smell, would repulse you on a physical level just as much as the prospect of owning a house-elf is repellent to you. Hermione remembered the fear which she felt, reflexively, instinctively, when she encountered vampires and hags at Hogwarts. Not all instincts are right, she said. Very true. So I will tell you why this instinct in particular is correct. 
Riddle once again seems to regard the goblet in his hand, though for all Hermione knew his eyes were looking in an entirely different direction. After a few seconds, his face turned back to her, and he gestured at her with the goblet. "'Would you like to drown yourself tonight?' "'What? No!' "'Then perhaps you would like to slice open your neck,' Riddle said. His other hand clenched into a fist, and when it reopened, there was a naked razor on his gloved palm. "'If you are concerned about the pain, I assure you that it has a very fine blade, and you will not feel it cut.' Hermione resisted the urge to step back. He wasn't going to do anything to her here, and she wasn't about to let him see that he had gotten to her. "'Stop fucking with me and get to the point!' Riddle shrugged at the profanity, and the razor disappeared with a twist of his hand. "'You have an instinct against harming yourself. The act is not impossible, if the need is great enough. But even so, you will have to fight it, and even when you have conquered death, you may yet have to conquer pain. Do you understand this?' Riddle asked, and Hermione nodded. "'Very well. Then my point is this. By owning an elf, even an elf who desires it, you harm yourself. If you are willing to own an elf, then you are already broken, morally blind. And if you are forced to do so, compelled by circumstances or competing moral urges, then you will be broken.' I don't want—I mean, I don't want to own a house-elf, but I think you're overstating things, Hermione said. Slavery is bad because it hurts people. This isn't Haiti or serfdom or something. When we're talking about forcing house-elves to be enslaved, and I really don't understand what you're talking about, about being broken or anything like that. Riddle hissed or sighed. It all sounded the same. You are French-raised and muggle-born. So I assume that you are familiar with René Descartes. I... what does he have to do with anything? The name was familiar, and Hermione knew he had something to do with math, with geometry or charts or something, but arithmetic didn't always use the terms muggle mathematicians used in similar contexts, and Hermione could hardly be expected to know the life story of every dead muggle, could she? And anyway, what was a British anti-muggle bigot doing, bringing up muggle maths in a moral debate? Do not think that I hate muggles, Miss Granger. The statute of secrecy protects them as much as us, if not more. They are protected against our abuses, they are protected against our carelessness, and most of all, they are protected against seeing a beauty and a glory which can never be theirs. The cruelest thing which nature ever wrought was the ostrich, a bird which can see the sky but cannot fly. If we could but conceal the sky... As we concealed magic from muggles, it would be the greatest good we could do for them. Hermione shivered and turned her face away from his. Had he just met her eyes? She couldn't tell behind the mask. She hadn't even felt him enter her mind, if indeed that had happened. But every now and then, Riddle continued, every now and then, muggles have a good idea. It would be difficult for them not to. Muggles lack magic, not brains. And against our hundred thousands, they have their billions. What good idea did a cop have, then? Nothing, really. There was absolutely nothing which the man devised that was not also devised by others, or wrong, or both. But one of his most grievous errors is pertinent to our discussion. You see, he would have us believe that the beasts of the world are mere automata, 
Met machine, one devoid of thought and sensation. It was the sort of mistake which he could never have made had he spoken with an adjournment, sir. But wizards were already withdrawing in those days, and at any rate, my point has nothing to do with the ignorance of Buckles. Even had Descartes been correct, it would not permit the wanton abuse of animals, incapable of suffering though they might be. Why not? asked Hermione. She knew she was playing along with his argument, but the question was genuine. If an animal really couldn't feel anything, if it was truly just a bet machine, then what would be the difference between harming that animal and, say, ripping up a piece of parchment? Where was the moral distinction between cursing a stone and cursing a dog, except that the dog suffered? Because between the abuser and the abused, there are two parties, not just one. When you are an elf, you become party to a relationship whose inequality has no equal. Your power in that state is nearly unlimited, constrained only by the interest and ability of other parties. You have heard, I wager, that power corrupts. This is absolute power, corrupting absolutely worse. We consider the elf's owner to be a slave owner because we imagine that the elf is something that can be enslaved. We own kettles without apology because we consider them to be mere objects in the world. But we cannot help but imagine the elf as a being, and yet by putting themselves in a relationship with them as their owners, we cannot help but make them into objects of our will. Hermione shook her head. You're just framing it that way. It isn't necessarily true. And if it's just a matter of vocabulary, then we could change the words and say that we're an elf's guardian. Perhaps all this philosophy is too abstract for you, and something more concrete is required, he said and Hermione rankled. Very well. I want you to imagine your perfect world, where you get everything you want. Elves who wish to be enslaved are enslaved, but they are also protected by the law, which has been perfectly designed and meets with your every expectation. Elves who wish to be freed must be freed without delay. Those who wish to be paid must be hired at a fair market rate or better, and so on and so forth. Whatever you wish for them has been granted, and furthermore, these laws are enforced by enlightened persons who would perform their task tirelessly and without corruption or mistakes. I tell you that this world will be, in its way, worse than the old Britain. How? Even if you're objecting to the existence of slavery, there still has to be less of it than before. But it is an enslavement which will never end. It is the nature of an elf's magical enslavement that... While they may plot and manoeuvre to achieve freedom, they cannot simply get it by fleeing and avoiding capture. We can outlaw those specific clauses, though, Hermione said. You cannot, if you intend to respect their choices as you understand these things. There are elves who will accept nothing less than the full, unmitigated form of slavery of the old Briton, and you will never settle for a more diluted form that affords them greater agency. Do you agree with that? I suppose so. Then as long as you insist on respecting their wishes, some elves will be abused. You will have outlawed abuse, but mere legislation does not actually do anything but force it on the ground. If you intend to thoroughly stamp out abuse, to really end it for good... Then you will have to enforce that law by means of the imperious curse. Riddle cocked his head. I do not suppose you will do that. Hermione couldn't well glare at him, 
not if she wanted him out of her hand, so she contented herself with glaring at the floor instead. No, then what happens next is inevitable. Masters who do not wish to free their elves will forbid those elves from leaving the estate and from communicating with anyone else if you require young elves to get an education in freedom and the options that are available to them, then their parents will revile you for that indoctrination. Just as some elves revile me now, he said. Though Hermione felt rather sure that she would prefer to be reviled if that was the cost of avoiding murder. Besides, it wasn't as though he'd escaped that by his own admission. If you insist on regular inspections, Riddle continued, then you will certainly ensure that no permanent harm comes to an elf, but then, after all you can do has been done, the abuse will continue, behind closed doors, and by methods which will not scar the body. And because it is done in the darkness, you and those like you will tell yourself that the day is done, and the war is won, and whatever abuse still exists, whatever its frequency, whatever its severity, will continue forever, unabated. After all, if you are unwilling to make the decisions which I was forced to make, now, when the evidence of their abuse was there for all to see, how will you ever decide to violate their much-vaunted agency, when it is so easy to pretend that there are no more problems? But you own house-elves! You own every enslaved house-elf in Britain. How can you sit there and talk to me about, about this, this great moral harm that slave-owners inflict on themselves when you're the biggest, the only slave-owner in the country? How is that not corrupting you? Hermione said. I am incorruptible. No one is incorruptible, she insisted. I am no one. You're insufferable, that's what you are, Hermione replied, and she turns to leave. And by the way... "'Give my regards to Miss Skeeter,' Riddle said, and despite herself Hermione stopped, questioned whether she wanted to get drawn back into conversation with him, and decided to let her curiosity get the best of her. "'Who?' "'Oh, just a good friend of mine. You see, the Ministry has kept a sort of press embargo up until now, keeping the reporters and other riffraff at arm's length from the school, and Hogsmeade, since that seems to be popular amongst some of our guests. But that will be ending in a few days, with the close of this year, and then—' Riddle gave an exaggerated sigh. They will fall on you like a pack of wolves, I expect. Just smile and nod if you want my advice. It works excellently for me. Does it? Riddle nodded, tipped his goblet sideways so the pumpkin juice ran out like an orange waterfall into the Christmas tree's pot, then set the goblet upside down on the table and walked away. For the full text of this and other stories by the same author, visit the archive of our own page of Call Me Saltisside. The music is Amon Ra by Day's Witch, under a Creative Commons license, with assistance from 1T1. If you would like to commission me to record a story, voiceover, or character, please get in touch with me using the contact information on my website, which is located at sangabrielvo.com. And there you can find other stories that I've read, as well as links to my Patreon page, to which I hope you consider subscribing to support me, and my Discord server, where I record things live for your enjoyment. And finally, as always, thank you for listening.